episode 49, Waiting for the Shoe. Well, hello. I'm... I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I will explain it to you. Uh, My husband is gone right now, not because he's on a business trip, but because he has gone up to Seattle to see his grandmother, who is 93, and who, um, she's been going in and out of the hospital lately, and uh, the most recent stint was earlier this week, and, um, you know, she's 93, and her body is just kind of slowly, I think, shutting down in, in stages, and it's... Um, it's really very sad, and it's particularly sad for me and my family because we all kind of adopted her. She, um, let's see, I met her for the first time of my life in March of 1995, and I met her under ridiculous circumstances, and it was kind of stressful, and so I'm, you know, trying to make small talk. And she's, you know, in her 80s, early 80s at that point, and, um, so I said to her, uh, blah, blah. gee, um, have you seen any movies lately that you liked? And she thought for a minute and she said, well, I quite liked Pulp Fiction. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, I'm, <laughs> I'm not talking to my grandma. <laughs> she's, she, that's just what she's like. She took classes at NYU until just a couple of years ago. She is, um, she's just a kick in the pants. She is a, she is a tough broad. She is just something else. And, um, it's very hard to think of not having her around. Um, we lost Andrew's mom to ovarian cancer, um, uh, right before we got, well, actually she died the night I got pregnant with my first son. Um, yes, it was weird. Um, and so it's, it's been very hard because I adored Andrew's mom. Everybody adored Andrew's mom. And, um, and so we kind of, you know, Vera was the end of the regime. And, uh, and you know, facing mortality is always hard. And um, even if it's someone else's and not your own, maybe especially if it's someone else's and not your own. But, um, but I am... I am certainly sad, and I am, in fact, waiting for the shoe to drop. Um, you know, life goes on, I know, but it's going to be especially hard because I won't be able to get up for the funeral. Andrew or I could have gone, and um, obviously Andrew was the one who needed to go, and we talked about it and decided it would be much more important to show up now while she's alive and get to see her and hang out with her and talk to her, then it would be to go up to a funeral um, in a city that, that wasn't hers. She's from New York, but she's been living with her son and in, um, son and daughter-in-law and other grandchildren up in Seattle to, um, to be closer to her son, which I think was a really smart move. But it reminded me in explaining the name of this week's episode that I only gave you half of the reason for last week's episode being called As Good As My Witness on You, It Looks Good. When I, way back in the misty, murky past, I worked at Disney in feature animation and I worked on the movie Aladdin. And the animators were 
um, the most generous, wonderful, gifted people I have ever had the pleasure to work with. And um, as were the writers, they, um, Ted and Terry, who've gone on to do, you know, Zorro and um, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbeans and all that. Really super hugely talented people on that film. And um, <clears throat> one of the guys, uh, Tom Cito, oh my gosh, I can't remember. I can't believe I remembered that. Tom Cito uh, once drew me a thank you note. I was I was just a PA. I did menial labor for Disney. And one of my tasks, aside from getting everybody lunch most days, was to um, to organize the getting of the Aladdin jackets. This is a big deal. Everybody has a jacket. If you live anywhere near LA, you know everybody has a jacket for every movie they've ever worked on or near even the bad ones. Um, so we had Aladdin jackets and it was not a pretty job because everybody has an opinion. And of course you're trying to satisfy a bunch of artists. And because I was just a PA, I didn't have final say in anything. And so decisions were made that I found it really difficult to defend because I thought they were wrong. And it was just a horrible, horrible series of days when, um, when the jackets came out. And so to cheer me up, Tom Cito drew me a caricature sheet of me in really bad tailor clothes, you know, with a tie and a vest open and, you know, measuring tape around my neck and um, him in line and Andres Deja in line, who was one of, I think he was a background painter. He was really good. He'd been there for a while too. Oh no, he's the guy who drew Jafar. That's right. He was a Jafar guy anyway. Um, they were standing in line waiting for their jacket and Tom, who was a large man, uh, I had squished into a very small jacket and the speech bubble coming out of my mouth was, listen, as God is my witness on you, it looks good, which is ultimately what I wound up having to say to a lot of people who misordered, thought they were a size small when really they were a medium or a large. It was a bad day. So that's, that's where that came from. We have t-shirts. And just a huge thank you to Katie. Once again, I went to Cafe Press and I ordered my t-shirt and it arrived in record time. I got it yesterday. I immediately threw it on. Uh, Andrew was just cackling. He thought it was so great. And, um, and so today, of course, I proudly wore my t-shirt around hoping that people would comment, you know, on my, my vaguely meaningful, what does that mean? WWMD. So I wore it to a yarn store thinking, I don't get out much. I'm homeschooling my son. I work from home. I podcast from home. When do I see humans? Maybe if I go to a yarn store, I'll actually get some traction out of the shirt. And I walked around the entire yarn store talking to people showing them my back where she's clearly knitting with double pointed needles. How often do you see a t-shirt with someone knitting on double points? Or okay, a t-shirt with someone knitting. Let's just let's just start there. No one said a word. <laughs> I was so distraught. Like who are you people? Can't you 
look and just notice something, anything. Your powers of observation are really limited and it's bumming me out. Nonetheless, I love my t-shirt and um, I took some pictures of myself with the uh, the Macintosh computer has a little camera built in and so I took I tried to take pictures of me looking particularly evil <laughs> and if if any of them came out they'll show up on the show notes but for now you'll just have to imagine that uh, I also got an interesting email more and more stuff is coming in on the whole bedlam thing that I mentioned and um, Rebecca told me that she found on LibriVox a few months ago something called 10 Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly. She said it's not fiction, but it's very good. And she found a couple of other things, I think, by Nellie Bly. So if you're interested, Nellie Bly, LibriVox, 10 Days in a Madhouse. And um, Rebecca also forwarded her theory of Madame Defarge. She said, uh, I love your theory of Madame Defarge's knitting code. Morse code would work very nicely in a knit and pearl pattern. It would give a whole new meaning to reading your knitting, which I thought was funny. So yes, I like, I really like that idea of a knit and pearl pattern because, you know, it's tactile and it would be hard to see unless, uh, unless you're right, right there feeling it, reading it with your fingers. Um, Tracy in Michigan? Tracy wrote, Madame Defarge would knit lace, her secret message obscured until carefully blocked. Of course, there was a simple pictogram code in the lace. No lettering would appear, but to those for whom the message was intended, it would be clear. <laughs> I love that. I thought that was just great. Ah, spectacular. You guys come up with the best stuff. It just makes me happy. And tonight's chapters are really good, and I'm very, very excited. So without any more yammering about me, here's the cool part. Tonight you get a chapter called Congratulatory, which is chapter four, and then you get the jackal. Congratulatory is everybody being happy that Charles Darnay is not going to be hung and drawn and quartered. And the jackal is all about Sidney Carton. Actually, both chapters are really about Sidney Carton. But, um, Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay, Lucy Manette, all of these names are not classic Dickens names. You know, they're not Scrooge, um, and um, or they're not Pip or Estella. You get a lawyer whose name is Striver, and I don't think I need to say anything more about him. He's kind of he's kind of a a jerk. I, I, when I listened to it the first time, you know, I just listened to kind of get the story. And then I went back and listened again to kind of get more meaning and meat out of it. And my impression of him right off the bat was just dead on. Um, and I'm sure you'll have a very similar reaction. I think Dickens did a spectacular job on getting pompous jerk across with Striver. He is nicknamed the lion and Sidney Carton is nicknamed the Jackal. And if you know anything about jackals, they're not particularly pleasant animals. Not that they're any bad animals. They're all part of a symbiotic relationship with the earth and the ecosystem. But a jackal, mm, you don't want to meet one in a dark alley. So you've got that connotation of Sidney Carton. But the other thing that I learned in doing some research is that the word jackal was used as a way to describe someone who kind of does menial assistance ship things for you. I would have been a jackal when I worked for Disney. 
menial describes what I did. Um, so, so we get that aspect of Sidney Carton. But as I was listening to this all again today, something struck me about Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton, as you've already seen, you know, sits through the entire court proceedings looking at the ceiling, paying no attention, you think, until suddenly he comes out with this brilliant, you know, well, how can you tell that I'm not him? So clearly he has been listening, clearly he has been paying attention, and clearly he likes a challenge. I I can't help but think of like James Spader and William Shatner in Boston Lingle. If you've if you've ever watched them, they have such a great relationship and they're well, they're very talented actors. And they pull off this same kind of thing in the courtroom where you think they are not even remotely paying attention, and then suddenly they come out with something brilliant that, you know, somebody else wrote for them. So Sidney Carton looks like a total waste case, but what they're setting up here is every Tom Cruise character you've ever seen. And one of the, well, two of the best examples are Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai and Tom Cruise in War of the Worlds. He starts off the movie as a complete schlub, somebody who you don't respect, somebody who you don't even particularly like. You aren't entirely sure what's wrong with him. You have a pretty good idea in Last Samurai. But you you just, eh, your whole reaction is, eh, what a loser. Eh, too bad he's cute. Eh, and psychotic. So Carton is the same thing. And Dickens is setting this up beautifully. And Dickens may be setting this up beautifully as the progenitor. Progenitor? Oh my God, I don't know how to pronounce that. Progenitor? Somebody email me and tell me how that's pronounced. Oh my gosh. He's the first one, I think, in, in you know, classic canonical literature. I mentioned before Lord Byron came up with the whole Byronic hero in Don Juan, and and that's definitely true. Byron really starts this kind of roguish anti-hero guy, the Han Solo of the story. And Carton, Carton's even, I mean, he's beyond Han Solo. Han Solo's got some style and some grace, and he's not walking around drunk all the time, and he's not an idiot. He's just, you know, he's a show-off. Carton takes it a step further and really makes it very, very, very difficult to like him. At the same time, Dickens has these two chapters which are nothing but characterization. You get Carton, you get Darnay, and then you get Carton and Stryver. The duality between Carton and Darnay is kind of obvious. I mean, you've got the dark light thing going on, you've got the good and evil thing going on, um, you've got uh, even the weather turns dark on Sidney Carton. You know, everything. There's a candle, you know, just the glow of light. Sidney Carton emerges from the shadows. I mean, it couldn't be more transparent how Dickens is setting that up. The next chapter, when you get to the jackal, the setup is between Carton and Striver. And now you get this pompous bombast, this Striver who's just basically telling Sidney Carton what he's done wrong with his life. And they went to school together, so they're about the same age, which is a little disturbing to have, you know, someone your own age telling you what a loser you are and how you've messed up your life. But 
the descriptions of what Sidney is doing while Striver is giving him this lecture is great. He keeps putting wet towels around his head and the descriptions of how the towels, you know, get tired out and wrung out and just the imagery. Anyone who has ever lived in a humid climate and wrapped their head in a wet bandana to try, you know, a cold wet bandana to try and get some kind of relief from the the hell that is swirling around you. You know what your hair looked like when you took the bandana off. And that was all I could see when I was reading or listening to this chapter and, and Sidney Carton wrapping these wet towels around his head over and over and over again. So he does some really nice, Dickens does some really nice characterization work in this. Again, there's no real plot motion. He's just setting up the chess pieces for what's going to have to come next. And he's doing it very, very carefully and very, very specifically. Uh, I do want to give you a couple of terms because there's some weird things that they talk about in this. A winding sheet, some of you probably already know, a winding sheet is like a burial shroud. It's what they would have wrapped the body in after it was dead. They talk about um, the court cases tried between Hillary Term and Michael Muss. Hillary Term was January 11th through 31st, and Michael Muss was November 2nd through 25th, and this is when the courts heard cases. I don't know if those are the only times they heard cases. I don't think it is. And in fact, I'm going to link to a Wikipedia site on Hillary term. I know people are having trouble with Wikipedia, but I found that if you cross-reference stuff, you know, you actually look somewhere else along with Wikipedia, you can usually find more user-friendly descriptions of things on Wikipedia. You just have to kind of do your own fact-checking and make sure that they're not just making stuff up. And a uh, perspective glass. A perspective glass is, uh, it's like an opera glass. It's like little binoculars. So those are terms that they're going to throw out at you. And that's all they mean. And um, I think, I think that's all you need to know. I'm looking over my notes just to make sure I haven't left anything out that you might want to know. No, we're good. So in the meantime, I leave you with book two. Chapter 4 and 5, Congratulatory and the Jackal of Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Chapter 4, Congratulatory. From the dimly lighted passages of the court, the last sediment of the human stew that had been boiling there all day was straining off, when Dr. Manette, Lucy Manette, his daughter, Mr. Lorry, the solicitor for the defence, and its counsel, Mr. Striver, stood gathered round Mr. Charles Darnay, just released, congratulating him on his escape from death. It would have been difficult by a far brighter light to recognize in Dr. Manette, intellectual of face and upright of bearing, the shoemaker of the garret in Paris. Yet, no one could have looked at him twice without looking again, even though the opportunity of observation had not extended to the mournful cadence of his low, grave voice, and to the abstraction that clouded him fitfully without any apparent reason. 
while one external cause and that a reference to his long lingering agony would always as on the trial evoke this condition from the depths of his soul it was also in its nature to arise of itself and to draw a gloom over him as incomprehensible to those unacquainted with his story as if they had seen the shadow of the actual bastille thrown upon him by a summer sun when the substance was three hundred miles away only his daughter had the power of charming this black brooding from his mind she was the golden thread that united him to a past beyond his misery and to a present beyond his misery and the sound of her voice the light of her face the touch of her hand had a strong beneficial influence with him almost always not absolutely always for she could recall some occasions on which her power had failed but they were few and slight and she believed them over mr darnay had kissed her hand fervently and gratefully and had turned to mr stryver whom he warmly thanked mr stryver a man of little more than thirty but looking twenty years older than he was stout loud red bluff and free from any drawback of delicacy had a pushing way of shouldering himself morally and physically into companies and conversations that argued well for his shouldering his way up in life he still had his wig and gown on and he said squaring himself at his late client to that degree that he squeezed the innocent mr lorry clean out of the group i am glad to have brought you off with honour mr darnay it was an infamous prosecution grossly infamous but not the less likely to succeed on that account you have laid me under an obligation to you for life in two senses said his late client taking his hand i have done my best for you mr darnay and my best is as good as another man's i believe it clearly being incumbent on some one to say much better mr lorry said it perhaps not quite disinterestedly but with the interested object of squeezing himself back again you think so said mr stryver well you have been present all day and you ought to know you are a man of business too and as such quoth mr lorry whom the counsel learned in the law had now shouldered back into the group just as he had previously shouldered him out of it as such i will appeal to dr manette to break up this conference and order us all to our homes miss lucy looks ill mr darnay has had a terrible day we're worn out speak for yourself mr lorry said stryver i have a night's work to do yet speak for yourself i speak for myself answered mr lorry and for mr darnay and for miss lucy and miss lucy do you not think i may speak for us all he asked her the question pointedly and with a glance at her father his face had become frozen as it were in a very curious look at darnay an intent look deepening into a frown of dislike and distrust not even unmixed with fear with this strange expression on him his thoughts had wandered away my father said lucy softly laying her hand on his he slowly shook the shadow off and turned to her shall we go home my father with a long breath he answered yes 
the friends of the acquitted prisoner had dispersed under the impression which he himself had originated that he would not be released that night the lights were nearly all extinguished in the passages the iron gates were being closed with a jar and a rattle and the dismal place was deserted until to-morrow morning's interest of gallows pillory whipping-post and branding iron should repeople it Walking between her father and Mr. Darnay, Lucy Manette passed into the open air. A hackney coach was called, and the father and daughter departed in it. Mr. Stryver had left them in the passages to shoulder his way back to the robing room. Another person, who had not joined the group, or interchanged a word with any of them, but who had been leaning against the wall where its shadow was darkest, had silently strolled out after the rest, and had looked on until the coach drove away. He now stepped up to where Mr. Lorry and Mr. Darnay stood upon the pavement. "'So, Mr. Lorry, men of business may speak to Mr. Darnay now?' nobody had made any acknowledgment of mr carton's part in the day's proceedings nobody had known of it he was unrobed and was none the better for it in appearance if you knew what a conflict goes on in the business mind when the business mind is divided between good-natured impulse and business appearances you would be amused mr darnay mr lorry reddened and said warmly you have mentioned that before, sir. We men of business who serve a house are not our own masters. We have to think of the house more than ourselves. I know, I know, rejoined Mr. Carton carelessly. Don't be nettled, Mr. Lorry. You are as good as another. I have no doubt. Better, I dare say. And indeed, sir, pursued Mr. Lorry, not minding him, I really don't know what you have to do with the matter. If you'll excuse me, as very much your elder, for saying so, I really don't know that it is your business. Business, bless you, I have no business, said Mr. Carton. It is a pity you have not, sir. I think so, too. If you had, pursued Mr. Lorry, perhaps you would attend to it. Lord love you, no, I shouldn't, said Mr. Carton. "'Well, sir,' cried Mr. Lorry, thoroughly heated by his indifference, "'business is a very good thing, and a very respectable thing. "'And, sir, if business imposes its restraints and its silences and impediments, "'Mr. Darnay, as a young gentleman of generosity, "'knows how to make allowance for that circumstance. "'Mr. Darnay, good night. God bless you, sir. "'I hope you have been this day preserved for a prosperous and happy life. "'Chair there!' Perhaps a little angry with himself, as well as with the barrister, Mr. Lorry bustled into the chair, and was carried off to Tellson's. Carton, who smelt of port wine, and did not appear to be quite sober, laughed then, and turned to Darnay. "'This is a strange chance that throws you and me together. This must be a strange night to you, standing alone here with your counterpart on these street stones.' "'I hardly seem yet,' returned Charles Darnay, "'to belong to this world again.' "'I don't wonder at it. "'It's not so long since you were pretty far advanced on your way to another. "'You speak faintly. "'I begin to think I am faint. "'Then why the devil don't you dine? "'I dined myself while those numbskulls were deliberating "'which world you should belong to, this or some other. "'Let me show you the nearest tavern to dine well at.' 
Drawing his arm through his own, he took him down Ludgate Hill to Fleet Street, and so, up a covered way, into a tavern. Here they were shown into a little room, where Charles Darnay was soon recruiting his strength with a good plain dinner and good wine. While Carton sat opposite to him at the same table, with his separate bottle of port before him, and his fully half-insolent manner upon him. "'Do you feel yet that you belong to this terrestrial scheme again, Mr. Darnay?' "'I am frightfully confused regarding time and place, but I am so far mended as to feel that.' "'It must be an immense satisfaction.' He said it bitterly, and filled up his glass again, which was a large one. "'As to me, the greatest desire I have is to forget that I belong to it.' It has no good in it for me, except wine like this, nor I for it. So we are not much alike in that particular. Indeed, I begin to think we're not much alike in any particular, you and I. Confused by the emotion of the day, and feeling his being there with this double of coarse deportment to be like a dream, Charles Darnay was at a loss how to answer. Finally, answered not at all. "'Now your dinner is done,' Carton presently said. "'Why don't you call a health, Mr. Darnay? "'Why don't you give your toast?' "'What health? What toast?' "'Why, it's on the tip of your tongue. "'It ought to be. It must be. "'I swear it's there.' "'Miss Manette, then. "'Miss Manette, then.' "'Looking his companion full in the face while he drank the toast, "'Carton flung his glass over his shoulder against the wall, "'where it shivered to pieces, then rang the bell and ordered in another. "'That's a fair young lady to hand to a coach in the dark, Mr. Darnay,' "'he said, ruing his new goblet. "'A slight frown and a laconic, "'Yes,' were the answer.' "'That's a fair young lady to be pitied by and wept for by. "'How does it feel? "'Is it worth being tried for one's life "'to be the object of such sympathy and compassion, Mr. Darnay?' "'Again Darnay answered not a word. "'She was mightily pleased to have your message when I gave it her. "'Not that she showed she was pleased, but I suppose she was.' The illusion served as a timely reminder to Darnay that this disagreeable companion had, of his own free will, assisted him in the strait of the day. He turned the dialogue to that point and thanked him for it. "'I neither want any thanks nor merit any,' was the careless rejoinder. "'It was nothing to do in the first place, and I don't know why I did it. In the second, "'Mr. Darnay, let me ask you a question.' "'Willingly.' and a small return for your good offices. Do you think I particularly like you? Really, Mr. Carton, returned the other, oddly disconcerted, I have not asked myself the question, but ask yourself the question now. You have acted as if you do, but I don't think you do. I don't think I do, said Carton. I begin to have a very good opinion of your understanding. Nevertheless, pursued Darnay, rising to ring the bell, there is nothing in that, I hope, to prevent my calling the reckoning, and our parting without ill blood on either side. Carton rejoining, nothing in life, Darnay rang. Do you call the whole reckoning, said Carton, on his answering in the affirmative. Then bring me another pint of this same wine drawer, and come and wake me at ten. 
The bill being paid, Charles Darnay rose and wished him good night. Without returning the wish, Carton rose too, with something of a threat of defiance in his manner, and said, A last word, Mr. Darnay, you think I am drunk? I think you have been drinking, Mr. Carton. Think you know I have been drinking. Since I must say so, I know it. Then you shall likewise know why. I am a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth, and no man on earth cares for me. Much to be regretted. You might have used your talents better. Maybe so, Mr. Darnay, maybe not. Don't let your sober face elate you, however. You don't know what it may come to. Good night. When he was left alone, the strange being took up a candle, went to a glass that hung against the wall, and surveyed himself minutely in it. "'Do you particularly like the man?' he muttered at his own image. "'Why should you particularly like a man who resembles you? There is nothing in you to like, you know that. Ah, oh, confound you! What a change you have made in yourself! A good reason for taking to a man that he shows you what you have fallen away from and what you might have been, changed places with him, and would you have been looked at by those blue eyes as he was, and commiserated by that agitated face as he was?' come on and have it out in plain words you hate the fellow he resorted to his pint of wine for consolation drank it all in a few minutes and fell asleep on his arms with his hair straggling over the table and a long winding sheet in the candle dripping down upon him book two chapter five the jackal those were drinking days, and most men drank hard. So very great is the improvement time has brought about in such habits that a moderate statement of the quantity of wine and punch which one man would swallow in the course of a night without any detriment to his reputation as a perfect gentleman would seem in these days a ridiculous exaggeration. The learned profession of the law was certainly not behind any other learned profession in its bacchanalian propensities, Neither was Mr. Stryver, already fast-shouldering his way to a large and lucrative practice behind his compeers in this particular, any more than in the drier parts of the legal race. A favorite at the Old Bailey, and eke at the sessions, Mr. Stryver had begun cautiously to hew away at the lower staves of the ladder on which he mounted. Sessions and the old Bailey had now to summon their favorites specially to their longing arms, and, shouldering itself toward the visage of the Lord Chief Justice in the Court of King's Bench, the florid countenance of Mr. Stryver might be daily seen, bursting out of a bed of wigs like a great sunflower, pushing its way at the sun from among a rank garden full of flaring companions. It had once been noted at the bar that while Mr. Stryver was a glib man and an unscrupulous and ready and a bold, that he had not that faculty of extracting the essence from a heap of statements, which is among the most striking and necessary of the advocate's accomplishments. But a remarkable improvement came upon him as to this. The more business he got, the greater his power seemed to grow of getting at the pith and marrow and however late at night he sat carousing with Sidney Carton, he always had his points at his finger's end in the morning. Sidney Carton, 
idlest and most unpromising of men, was Stryber's great ally. What the two drank together between Hillary Term and Michaelmas might have floated a king's ship. Stryber never had a case in his hand anywhere, but Carton was there with his hands in his pockets, staring at the ceiling of the court. They went to the same circuit, and even there they prolonged their usual orgies late into the night, and Carton was rumored to be seen at broad day going home stealthily and unsteadily to his lodgings like a dissipated cat. At last it began to get about, among such as were interested in the matter, that although Sidney Carton would never be a lion, he was an amazingly good jackal, and that he rendered suit and service to Stryver in that humble capacity. Ten o'clock, sir,' said the man at the tavern, whom he had charged to wake him. Ten o'clock, sir. "'What's the matter? Ten o'clock, sir.' "'What do you mean? Ten o'clock at night?' "'Yes, sir. Your honor told me to call you. "'Oh, oh, I remember. Very well. Very well.' After a few dull efforts to get to sleep again, which the man dexterously combated by stirring the fire continuously for five minutes, he got up, tossed his hat on, and walked out. He turned into the temple, and having revived himself by twice pacing the pavements of King's Bench Walk and paper buildings, turned into the Stryver chambers. The Stryver clerk, who never assisted at these conferences, had gone home, and the Stryver principal opened the door. He had his slippers on, and a loose bedgown, and his throat was bare for his greater ease. He had that rather wild, strained, seared marking about his eyes, which may be observed in all free livers of his class, from the portrait of Jeffreys downward, and which can be traced under various disguises of art through the portraits of every drinking age. "'You're a little late, memory,' said Stryber. "'About the usual time. It may be a quarter of an hour later.' They went into a dingy room lined with books and littered with papers, where there was a blazing fire. A kettle steamed upon the hob, and in the midst of the wreck of papers a table shone with plenty of wine upon it, and brandy, and rum, and sugar, and lemons. You have had your bottle, I perceive, Sidney. Two to-night, I think. I have been dining with the day's client, or seeing him dine, it's all one. That was a rare point, Sidney, that you brought to bear upon the identification. How came you by it? When did it strike you? I thought he was a rather handsome fellow, and I thought I should have been much the same sort of fellow, if I'd had any luck. Mr. Stryver laughed till he shook his precocious paunch. You and your luck, Sidney. Get to work. Get to work. Sullenly enough, the jackal loosed his dress, went into an adjoining room, and came back with a large jug of cold water, a basin, and a towel or two. Steeping the towels in the water, and partially wringing them out, he folded them on his head in a manner hideous to behold, sat down at the table, and said, "'Now I am ready.' "'Not much boiling down to be done to-night, memory,' said Mr. Stryver gaily, as he looked among his papers. "'How much?' "'Only two sets of them. Give me the worst first. "'There they are, Mr. Sidney. Fire away.' "'The lion then composed himself on his back on a sofa on one side of the drinking-table, "'while the jackal sat 
at his own paper-bestrewn table proper, on the other side of it, with the bottles and glasses ready to his hand. Both resorted to the drinking-table without stint, but each in a different way, the lion for the most part reclining with his hands in his waistband, looking at the fire, or occasionally flirting with some lighter document. The jackal, with knitted brows and intent face so deep in his task that his eyes did not even follow the hand he stretched out for the glass, which often groped about for a minute or more before he found the glass where his lips, two or three times the matter in his hand became so knotty that the jackal found it imperative on him to get up and steep the towels anew. From these pilgrimages to the jug and basin he returned with such eccentricities of damp headgear as no words can describe, which were made more ludicrous by his anxious gravity. At length the jackal had got together a compact repast for the lion and proceeded to offer it to him. The lion took it with care and caution, made his selections from it and his remarks upon it, and the jackal assisted both. When the repast was fully discussed, the lion put his hands in his waistband again and lay down to meditate. The jackal then invigorated himself with a bum for his throttle and a fresh application to his head, and applied himself to the collection of a second meal. This was administered to the lion in the same manner, and was not disposed of until the clock struck three in the morning. "'And now we have done, Sidney.' "'Fill a bumper of punch,' said Mr. Stryver. The jackal removed the towels from his head, which had been steaming again, shook himself, yawned, shivered, and complied. "'You were very sound, Sidney, in the matter of the three crown witnesses today, every question told. I am always sound, am I not? I don't gainsay it, which has roughened your temper. Put some punch into it and smooth it again.' With a deprecatory grunt, the jackal again complied. "'The old Sidney Carton of old Shrewsbury School,' said Stryver, nodding his head over him as he reviewed him in the present and the past. "'The old seesaw Sidney, one minute up, down the next, now in spirits and now in despondency.' "'Ah!' returned the other, sighing. "'Yes, the same Sidney with the same luck.' Even then I did exercises for the other boys, and seldom did my own. And why not? God knows. It was my way, I suppose. He sat with his hands in his pockets and his legs stretched out before him, looking at the fire. Carton, said his friend, squaring himself at him with a bullying air, as if the fire grate had been the furnace in which sustained endeavor was forged, and the one delicate thing to be done for the old Sidney Carton of old Shrewsbury School was to shoulder him into it. Your way is, and always was, a lame way. You summon no energy and purpose. Look at me. Oh, botheration, returned Sidney, with a lighter and more good-humored laugh. Don't you be moral. How have I done what I have done, said Stryver? How do I do what I do? "'Partly through paying me to help you, I suppose. "'But it's not worth your while to apostrophize me on the air about it. "'What you want to do, you do. "'You were always in the front rank, and I was always behind. "'I had to get to the front rank. "'I was not born there, was I? 
"'I was not present at the ceremony, but my opinion is you were,' said Carton. At this he laughed again, and they both laughed. "'Before Shrewsbury, and at Shrewsbury, and ever since Shrewsbury,' pursued Carton, "'you have fallen into your rank, and I have fallen into mine. "'Even then we were fellow-students in the student quarter of Paris, "'picking up French and French law and other French crumbs "'that we didn't get much good of. "'You were always somewhere.' and I was always nowhere. And whose fault was that? Upon my soul, I am not sure that it was not yours. You were always driving and writhing and shouldering and passing to that restless degree that I had no chance for my life but in rust and repose. It's a gloomy thing, however, to talk about one's own past with the day breaking. Turn me in some other direction before I go. Well, then, pledge me to the pretty witness, said Stryver holding up his glass. Are you turned in a pleasant direction? Apparently not, for he became gloomy again. Pretty witness, he muttered, looking down into his glass. I have had enough of witnesses today and tonight. Who's your pretty witness? The picturesque doctor's daughter, Miss Manette. She pretty? Is she not? No. Why, man alive, she was the admiration of the whole court. "'Rot the admiration of the whole court! "'Who made the old Bailey a judge of beauty? "'She was a golden-haired doll.' "'Do you know, Sidney,' said Mr. Stryver, "'looking at him with sharp eyes "'and slowly drawing a hand across his florid face, "'do you know I rather thought at the time "'that you sympathized with the golden-haired doll "'and were quick to see what happened to the golden-haired doll?' "'Quick to see what happened. "'If a girl, doll or no doll, swoons within a yard or two of a man's nose, "'he can see it without a perspective glass. "'I pledge you, but I deny the beauty. "'And now I'll have no more to drink. "'I'll get to bed.' "'When his host followed him out on the staircase with a candle to light him down the stairs, "'the day was coldly looking in through its grimy windows.' When he got out of the house, the air was cold and sad, the dull sky overcast, the river dark and dim, the whole scene like a lifeless desert. And wreaths of dust were spinning round and round before the morning blast, as if the desert sand had risen far away, and the first spray of it on its advance had begun to overwhelm the city. Waste forces within him, and a desert all round, this man stood still on his way to a silent terrace, and saw, for a moment lying in the wilderness before him, a mirage of honorable ambition, self-denial, and perseverance. In the fair city of his vision there were airy galleries from which the loves and graces looked upon him, gardens in which the fruits of life hung ripening, waters of hope that sparkled in his sight. A moment, and it was gone. Climbing to a high chamber in a well of houses, he threw himself down in his clothes on a neglected bed, and its pillow was wet with wasted tears. Sadly, sadly the sun rose. It rose upon no sadder a sight than the man of good abilities and good emotions incapable of their directed exercise, incapable of his own help and his own happiness, sensible of the blight on him, and resigning himself to let it eat him away. Thus ends Book Two, Chapter Five, The Jackal.
Isn't that a fabulous end to the Sidney Carton chapter? He cries on his pillow. This man who is not portrayed in a particularly nice light all the way up until now weeps and cries himself to sleep. I just, you know, I'm starting to think that everybody says modern American literature started with Huck Finn. I'm starting to think that in many, many ways, modern literature, modern to us, modern literature started with Dickens. I mean, he certainly got the sense of humor that's still very au courant right now. And, um, and wow, to, you know, pull that out and not be, not be afraid to have that be your introduction to the man who will ultimately, ultimately, at the very end, be the hero of the book. I just, that's a, that is a gutsy move. I'm very impressed. And did you like Striver? Oh, you're going to see him more and more. He's, he's all over the place, obviously not in the French chapters, but he's in the English chapters. And, um, and he gets worse. He doesn't stay the way he is. He gets worse. So I'm going to go knit. I'm also probably going to go spin and maybe even paint. I hope you do too. Have a great week. Bye.